Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, now that the Fulton County Special Grand Jury probe into whether or not Donald Trump and others illegally interfered with Georgia's 2020 presidential election results, now that it's ended... What's next? I'll speak with Michael Moore, former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia. And speaking of Fulton County, it was last year when District Attorney Fonnie Willis said the organization known as YSL was actually a gang and responsible for various violent crimes here in Atlanta. Not every member became a defendant within this indictment, but certainly an significant amount did, and certainly some of the leadership, which is what's most important. Um, we're not going to just target the children that are running out at the direction of leaders and not target leaders. Well, since then, there have been more indictments and plea deals have taken place, and this week, jury selection is underway for the alleged leader of YSL, of, of YSL rapper Young Thug. And do you hate... And I do mean hate, or I could say dislike, because, you know, we're all about love here on Closer Look. Do you dislike daylight saving time? You know, the twice a year back and forth? Well, actually, it may not be healthy, some say, so we'll talk about it. All important conversations, but first this. Committee assignments are coming together in Congress, and it's looking like no members of Georgia's delegation will chair a committee this session, as we hear from WABE's Sam Greenglass. Last term, Democrat David Scott chaired the important House Agriculture Committee. Now that Republicans have the majority, Scott will drop down to the ranking member. Republican Buddy Carter ran for the top spot on the House Budget Committee, but didn't get the nod. In a seniority-driven institution, Georgia's most senior Republican, Austin Scott, was only elected in 2010. Marjorie Taylor Greene is expected to get committee assignments again. Last term, she lost her assignments due to her history of making anti-Semitic and racist comments, promoting conspiracy theories, and previously condoning violence against Democratic officials. Now, Greene is reportedly in line for a spot on the influential House Oversight Committee. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. In related news, health advocates are calling on state lawmakers to deal with what they say is Georgia's long-standing shortage of medical providers. Dr. Keisha Callens is an OBGYN in central Georgia. She says rural patients often face obstacles to accessing timely care. You have people driving anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes to an hour even more to come to get specialty services. And so it's important for us to have clinicians where people can be accessible in the community. Lawmakers this session are also likely to build on last year's Mental Health Parity Act. That landmark law includes a provision to help grow the workforce of mental health providers in underserved communities. Now, the General Assembly will also begin meetings to pass a budget this week. Meanwhile, advocacy groups are voicing their priorities. Susanna Capaluto reports what some want to do with the extra billions of dollars in surplus. Georgia's state budget has a $6 billion surplus, so there's a lot of money that can be spent. The libertarian-leaning Georgia Public Policy Foundation is advocating for an income tax cut rather than a one-time payment rebate to taxpayers, as was done last year. The progressive Georgia Budget and Policy Institute says Georgia now has a chance to better fund health care and education to help families. It proposes more education dollars for students living in poverty, and an expansion of Medicaid to finally cover the half a million uninsured Georgians. Governor Brian Kemp will outline his budget priorities later this month. Susanna Capaluto, WABE News. And finally... But the Georgia Bulldogs bludgeon their way to -to back-to-back. Glory, glory, Georgia, as the fight song says. 
Well, you know, another national championship win calls for another celebration for the Georgia Bulldogs. So fans, of course, I'm sure will be in their red and black as they line Lumpkin Street when a parade kicks off this coming Saturday at 12.30 p.m. down in Athens. Of course, it will be followed by Dog Walk, don't know what that is, to the festivities at Sanford Stadium. Tickets will be available to the general public Starting tomorrow at 9 a.m., a crowd of 92,000 fans packed Sanford Stadium for last year's championship celebration, and I'm sure they will do the same this Saturday. This is Closer Look. Back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues here from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Jury selection is underway this week for the trial involving Atlanta-based artist, rapper Young Thug, whose real name is Jeffrey Williams. Now, you may recall last May, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis, along with Atlanta police officials and Fulton County Sheriff Pat Labatt, they all held a, pe- they all held a press conference regarding the arrest of Young Thug, as well as, I think, 27 others. We'll check because a lot's been changing. And part of this, in this press conference, they talked about how YSL, and perhaps Young Thug and another artist, Gunna, whose real name is Sergio Kitchens, you know how they were involved. Back then, D.A. Willis said Young Thug was the leader of YSL. If you look at the indictment, the crimes that are alleged within it go all the way back from 2012 to 2022. Um, I wouldn't say that it contains every act of crime that YSL committed. Uh, it is a significant gang that operates here in Atlanta, Georgia, and not every member became um, a defendant within this indictment, but certainly an ex- significant amount did, and certainly some of the leadership, which is what's most important. Um, we're not going to just target the children that are running out at the direction of leaders and not target leaders. Well, since then, there's been a lot that's already taken place, including plea deals, and rapper Gunna is actually out of jail now. Returning to Closer Look to talk about all of this is journalist George Chidi, who's been following the developments in this case. Welcome back, George. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy to be here. It has been a while since we, I think we had you on in August, but let's give listeners a a refresher. We heard what DA Willis had to say on what prosecutors are alleging in in this case. Let's begin with what the charges, young thug, what he's facing. So the primary charge here is a a racketeering charge, and it's a state RICO charge. And if he's convicted, he could spend 20 years in jail simply on that charge alone. Uh, What the district attorney is saying is that Young Thug orchestrated a murder, Mm -hmm. among other things. There's underlying charges of drug trafficking and weapons charges. But the thing that people are focusing on is uh, a murder that took place in 2015 of a a local uh, gang leader named uh, Donovan uh, Peanut Thomas, Mm -hmm. uh, who was murdered in front of a a barber shop in Castleberry Hill, and it set off uh, a gang war, uh, where as many as 50 people may have been, been killed when you add it all up over the seven years. As many as 50. As many as 50. Uh, I can, I, I'm looking through the numbers. I can find 25. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a question of like whether or not you classify any given murder that some of the people who are charged in this case, whether or not that's a quote gang murder mm-hmm. or just incidental. And George, the other alleged, the, the rival gang, I guess, if you will, there was a, a, a major gang, if you will, that prosecutors say was YSL was in had issues with right uh that's YFN um and uh the sort of front for YFN is a 
fellow called YFN Lucci, who is also in jail mm -hmm. on a murder charge and a racketeering charge. Uh, amazingly, that trial was also supposed to start this week. It's been pushed back because, like, just trying to get at this one YFN case or mm -hmm. YSL case has been just a strain on the system. Yeah. And, and George, there's been a lot since we had you back on back in august a lot has taken place there have been a lot of plea deals <laughs> it, it's it's been a lot there were originally i believe 28 that were indicted under the, the that first wave correct that's correct that's how correct. many have taken a plea deal related to that so there are eight who have taken deals including gunna mm -hmm. uh that's the rapper sergio kitchens a uh, big name rapper mm -hmm. um who have now famously uh elocuted in court describing YSL as both a, a music label and a street gang. Um, there's a bit of a civil war within YSL right now. Gunna's on social media basically saying that he's not going to, like he's not responsible for a young thug being in jail and mm -hmm. that he's not testifying and uh, setting all of the questions about snitching aside, which I honestly don't think are relevant to anybody who isn't a defendant in this case. Mm -hmm. um, there are seven other people who are also, you know, have taken deals, some of whom are going to testify. Well, does it, uh, uh, Mr. Williams, Young Thug, didn't his brother, his own brother take a deal? Is that correct? Yes, it's, yeah. Un Funk. Uh, that's the rap name. But yes, his brother is one of the eight uh, who pled out and is uh, serving a very long probation sentence. Mm -hmm. um, what yeah. was... Gunna, Sergio Kitchens, what were the conditions or the agreement with his Alfred plea? So that's the thing. If Sergio Kitchens is called to the stand, he has to, um, he is obligated to testify. Um, if he wait, like if he doesn't necessarily have to, how do I put this? He can, the fifth, um, but if the prosecution waves uh, prosecution. Uh, if George, are you with he's us? He's obligated to testify. George, I want you to back up a little bit because I think we lost you for a second. So let's let's back up, if you can, again, the terms of this Alfred plea and, and, and kind of walk the audience into, into what it is. So an Alfred plea essentially says, um, I'm saying I'm innocent, but if this went to trial, maybe I would be convicted. And so in the interest of my personal interest, I am going to plead guilty. It is a guilty plea. Um, and it's like the terms of his, you know, the plea require him to spend a long time on probation to do community service, but mm -hmm. they also, among other things, require him to take the stand if called. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, it's not clear what he's gonna say, uh, but if he is given immunity to prosecution for his testimony, he doesn't have the right to refuse to answer questions. Mm. With the folks that you know and the insight that you've been given, was Young Thug presented with any type of deal? But I imagine if there's a murder, alleged murder here, or the orchestration of a, of a murder, uh, what kind of plea deal could he possibly have gotten? But do you know if, they, if he was offered a plea deal? So my understanding, based on folks who are inside, is that no, he was not. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not surprising to me because from the outset, and Bonnie Willis made the point, she's after ringleaders and she believes that Young Thug is the ringleader here. And so she's willing to offer actually fairly generous deals to some folks mm -hmm. um, who are accused of acts of violence uh, in order to ensure that she'll have their testimony when she needs it in order to convict Jeffrey Williams, young thug. And to your knowledge, what is the state of YSL right now? Who's in, because they said they were a record label too. Who's running the record right. label? Uh, honestly, I don't know. Mm. Um, so they're still putting out material and I, I see it every once in a while. Uh, they still have an active presence on social media mm -hmm. and there are other rappers associated with YSL that are, are making music. Um, the label itself was sold to Warner Music Group. Like, so YSL was operating under the 300 Entertainment Music label, which mm -hmm. was sold 
for, I believe, $400 million to Warner Music last year. Uh, so, I mean, there's still a like a very valuable catalog of music behind all of that. And we'll see what happens in, uh, from Ghana and the others in the future. Well, reports were that with the jury selection underway, and let's be clear, George, this could take a very long time with jury selection. They're saying six, six to nine months. That's the uh, that's Six the to estimate. nine months to see the jury. Oh, no, no. no. Uh, to see the jury? Maybe two months. It could take two months. Like there's kind of a betting pool within the defense attorneys uh, among them trying to figure <laughs> out whether or not it's going to take three weeks or the, whether or not it'll come in but before the end of March. But we're, all, of but we're also hearing that some very high profile names could be called on for both sides. Let's start with the prosecution. What names are you hearing? Uh, so uh, among others, um, the uh, I mean, certainly all of the defendants, mm-hmm. um, like the, the most interesting number, names, honestly, are the defense names. Uh, folks like uh, Killer Mike, mm-hmm. uh, city, uh, city Councilman Antonio Lewis is on the yeah is on the witness list uh as are record executives from uh i think lyra cohen is that his name lyra cohen yeah. and kevin lyles are mm-hmm. both on the witness list uh as is the rapper rich homie Quan, mm-hmm. um who i have to tell you is is fairly central to this case um all of this seems to have stemmed from a dispute that rich homie Quan and young thug were having in 2014. This is just, what are these folks fighting over? Is it just, is it, it just, it just, oh. seems, just seems very, and I look, I get it. You know, I'm, I'm not, I, I'm not that, I'm not that auntie that's like, I don't understand. I get it. It just seems once folks make it, it's like, why can't you just concentrate on your music and do that? But Hey, I get it. Well, that's just it. It's nobody just makes it on their own. Yeah. Um, part of this is, be Young Thug in 2014 for a moment, uh, if you will, stand in his shoes. And we're Tommy Kwan. Both of them are coming from relative poverty in an area of the city that is known for concentrated poverty. I get it. Uh, And they have a hit. They have a huge The Song of the Summer hit. Yeah. And the dispute was about whether or not they were going to continue their musical partnership. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, it wasn't just about whether or not they individually would remain successful, but whether or not they were going to be able to pull a number of people in both of their orbits out of poverty as well. Like, what does their long-term careers look like? And that was a dispute. Sure. Like, there was an argument about who should be where and who should be working with who and what risks are involved. And uh, that led to violence, mm-hmm. frankly. Uh, but that's why. Uh, it's not... It's. It's not incidental. It's not. It's not small stuff when you're mm-hmm. talking about people who had nothing, who are trying to figure out how to deal with millions of dollars mm-hmm. out of nowhere. Also, last year, District Attorney Fonnie Willis and others alleged that not just gangs, but they were very specific about these gangs being responsible for a large percentage of the crimes, violent crimes taking place in and around Atlanta. That was through, and everything they mentioned, maybe 80%. That was, you know, that's what they said. Right. You talked and to I think folk, they were. Go ahead. Yeah, I think they were exaggerating, honestly. Um, but not by a lot. Why? So I've been looking very closely at who's being murdered and why in Atlanta for a couple of years now. That's the sort of the center part of my, my journalism. Mm-hmm. Um much of the increase can be attributed to gang activity. Um, a lot of violence, even stuff that's that looks casual, is being done by uh, young, very young, affiliated gang members. But it's not all of it. It's not even most of it. I think 40% is probably a realistic mm-hmm. number. But it's still, it's 40% is a lot. Um there was this idea that when Fonnie Willis was prosecuting YSL, she essentially said, all right, this is the first in a series of gang prosecutions mm-hmm. that she was going to do. And after the YSL thing, she had one more um, and then not so much. And I think it's because 
like frankly prosecuting this case has has proven to be difficult it's Mm -hmm. a strain on the system simply because of how many defendants there are well and also judge mcburney too who is very very busy because not only is he part of this but there's also i'm going to talk about this in a moment uh with the the probe into alleged possible criminal conduct related to georgia's presidential election from 2020 he's very busy that he is. But, I mean, when I talk about the strain, so there are 14 people going on trial right now. Eight of them pled out. Mm-hmm. Four of them did not have defense attorneys assigned to them in time. I mean, think about that. Like, you've got, they've been in jail for six months, and they the system could not provide a defense attorney, like, for them to even negotiate plea deals, never mind the rest of this, in enough time between the time of their arrest and the start of the trial. Two of them remain out in the wind, have not been arrested yet. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the most remarkable criminal case I've ever had a look at. Meanwhile, what are you hearing from, I guess, the the communities from where these alleged crimes have taken place? What is the word on a curb, as they say, you know? So just this, like there's... So tremendous resources are being expended, and for a, a good reason, I would say, if you're trying to reduce violent crime in Atlanta, this mm-hmm. looks like a you know a meaningful step, perhaps. The problem is nothing has fundamentally changed, uh, you know, on Cleveland Avenue, where or the other communities where folks were drawn into these gangs. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still tremendous economic inequality in Atlanta. And it's mm-hmm. that inequality that draws people into gang activity. Let's say everybody here is guilty and gets convicted. If nothing changes in South Atlanta, 10 years from now, we're going to be right back in the same spot. It will be a different gang. Like YSL was an outgrowth of a gang called 30 Deep, mm-hmm. which itself was an outgrowth of a gang called Raised on Cleveland or Raised on Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Who's to say there isn't going to be another three-letter gang coming coming down the pike because these folks have been displaced? George Sheedy is an Atlanta-based journalist covering crime, politics, and business. He writes the Atlanta Objective on Substack. He's been covering this. George, as always, we appreciate you taking the time and coming on the program. Thank you so much. Thank you. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. The Fulton County Special Grand Jury probing into whether or not Donald Trump and others illegally interfered with Georgia's 2020 presidential election results. Well, it's concluded. But here's the question. Now what? Well, joining the program is Michael J. Moore, former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia. And full disclosure, he has no legal connection with this case. At least as far as I know, I'll double check. <laughs> attorney Moore, no, thanks. No, no, no. Yeah, no legal connection. All right. Thank, Thank you for taking the time. It's your Closer Look debut. Well, I'm, I'm glad to be with you. Thanks for thanks for the invitation and for having me on. Let's begin here because all this began, well, technically last February. And, and now it's concluding in terms of this probe. Any surprise that how long this has taken or is this typical of a special grand jury probe? Well, it has taken a long time. I mean, and I think that can be disappointing and frustrating for folks uh, in general. Uh, you don't see the special grand jury process used a lot in a criminal investigation in Georgia. The Georgia grand jury process is usually that the district attorney takes the information, their investigation, presents the case to a regular criminal grand jury, and then they make a decision about an indictment. Here, the special grand jury is a lot like a federal grand jury. That is that you have the ability to subpoena witnesses and subpoena documents and decide what information you want to hear in the case mm-hmm. of the grand jury does. And so that's, that's what's taken a long time. And so the DA has been using this process to put, put the case together so that she can make a decision. She's going to present the facts to, to a criminal grand jury. And for listeners to fully understand, are there any special authorities or powers that a special grand jury has as opposed to a regular grand jury? 
Well, the, the, what they can do is subpoena witnesses and compel attendance of, of those witnesses to testify uh, and, and subpoena documents. We, Georgia's criminal grand juries really don't have investigative powers. Mm-hmm. That is to dig around into the case. They listen to the evidence presented by the investigators, but they don't themselves make certain decisions. And so the special grand jury in this case allowed the district attorney to, to uh, you know, call witnesses who wouldn't otherwise appear to use subpoenas who to compel people who, who wouldn't other, otherwise appear. And so you've seen some political figures come in. You've seen some, you know, uh, politicians and from Washington come down, some elected officials. You know, it's it's uh, it's been a it's been an interesting uh, few months, to say the least, down at the courthouse. That strategy of being able to, you know, subpoena some very high-profile political witnesses. I mean, I think Burt Jones was the only one that, uh, for right. lack of better words, escaped <laughs> being called. Right. Um, how do you see that? As, as I mean, you've been on that side before. That, call, yeah. of, course, of course, just calling high-profile names doesn't necessarily guarantee anything. Yeah, the. Um, I think it was probably the right move if she was going to do a broader investigation. I've been pretty clear in the past and things I've said that I do think she had the ability, if she wanted to make this about Trump, she already had the audio tape of the call with Raffensperger. So that alone was it's almost like having a, a confession mm-hmm. uh, ahead of the game. And so she could have pretty much played the tape to the grand jury and said, I want you to indict him based on his efforts to interfere with Raffensperger's job interfere with an elections official, commit voter fraud by finding or making up votes. And, and and Trump talks about that. But if she was going to broaden it out and look at the possibility of bringing in fake electors, bringing in people who were uh, involved in giving false statements to the General Assembly, if she was going to look at how this played in a bigger picture than just that one call, then I think the special grand jury was probably to her advantage because it did allow her to develop a case that went beyond the one incident and it allowed her to look at other ways that uh, the, the, the potential defendants uh, may have conspired together to change the outcome of the election uh, and, and to talk about those different things as opposed mm-hmm. to one specific incident. And so how does this work from here on? So you, all the interviews have been, you know, everyone's mm-hmm. testified. Will D.A. Willis get to make this final decision? What's the process now? She does. She, this, she's really vested with a great deal of power and authority in making the decision. It'll be up to her discretion what, what to charge or whether to make any charges, who to charge, who, who gets caught up in the net. It's ultimately her, her call to make. And so the, the question that's pending right now for the court is, will this special grand jury's report become public. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there's pros and cons to that. I mean, well, let's talk hand, about the pros. <laughs> well, on the one hand, I think it helps because it justifies sort of the expense and the effort that she's gone through for these this last eight months. And it gives her some political cover for that. You know, I, I, I heard you talking about, you know, some of the crime stats and things in the earlier segment. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some people who say, well, if we weren't looking at Trump, we could put all those resources over here on, on other crimes going on in Fulton County. This gives her some care because it does allow people to understand what was going on. So from the one hand, that's good on the on the con against it. It may be that uh, she decides not to follow some of the recommendations of that special grand jury. And so then she may be left explaining why she chose either to do something different or to follow specific recommendations they made as opposed to not following the other ones. So um, there's there's a double edged sword there. It's Georgia does not um, we don't allow uh, investigative files to get out into the public as a well, state. Well, we don't allow it, but <laughs> right, we don't. Right, we don't. We don't let it happen. I mean, we've got a Georgia Open Records Act, and it basically says that you can ask for investigative materials, but those don't have to be disclosed till after the the case is resolved. So this would be a this would be out of the norm for there to be an investigative file released into the public domain uh, until the, the case was resolved. But whether that's good or bad, I mean. Uh, there, there are media organizations who are in favor of releasing the report. I'm sure you're going to have people who maybe represent potential defendants who are going to mm-hmm. say, no, you don't let this out there. And, and our grand jury process is secret for a reason. That is, yeah. we, you know, if you're just mentioned in a grand jury report or maybe they're, they're looking at whether or not you should be charged. The, 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 the idea, the policy behind it is you don't want it to ruin somebody's life if they've not been charged with a crime. Sure. You don't want this public record out there with accusations. You mentioned the uh, the phone call from former mm-hmm. President Donald Trump. And, you know, I know it's a cliche when people talk about, oh, is that the smoking gun? Well, you know, look, that phone call 
to Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. I mean, is that enough in terms of proof of election meddling by Trump? Is that enough even on that? Yeah, that's there. It's a it's a long way down the road to be enough, and it may very well be enough. I mean, I think when I listen to the call, I could imagine a candidate calling somebody involved in the secretary of state's office saying, look, are there any other votes out there? Are we sure we counted everything Mm -hmm. from this district? Are we sure we looked? But he said, I need you to find. That's it. And that and the fact that he implied a threat of some kind of criminal prosecution against Raffensperger. That to me, when I heard the, the, him say, you know, it could be bad, there could be some other actions against you, those things change the call from a candidate to somebody in a position of power, perhaps trying to uh, corruptly influence the Secretary of State. And I think that to me uh, is probably the sort of the nail in the coffin on there. The tape, there's a real question on the admissibility of the tape. Um, Georgia, again, our law says that at least one party to the conversation has to, to know at the time. Right. right. Well, if, I, if I'm if i the one that's recording, right. I know about it, so I'm good. That's right. <laughs> In this instance, Brad Raffensperger came out and said he didn't know the call was being recorded by a member of his staff until after the fact. Trump, is, I'm sure, is going to say, I didn't know that a staff member in Georgia was recording it. And so uh, that question, that, that brings us to the question whether or not the call can be admitted itself. Now, that takes us back to the benefit of the special grand jury. This allowed her to get in evidence about the call from witnesses that heard it, as opposed to worried about whether or not the tape itself actually has to come in. So, so you could have somebody say, well, I heard him say this on the phone, and that, but you may not have the tape, or she may have been trying to clean that up so that she could develop uh, testimony about the admissibility of the tape itself. So. And then let's just say that th- there is something there. What's the charge? I mean, it's a felony to interfere in elections, right? It's a felony, right? There's a felony. There's some misdemeanors that can be charged, but it would be a felony charge, I think, in this case. And, uh, you know, the question would would be what if he were convicted? And I think that's a, you know, we don't want to get necessarily the car ahead of the horse because he's got not only have to you have to get an indictment, you got to go through the criminal process, get convicted and survive an appeal. So if, in fact, he were to get convicted and survive an appeal, the case, the conviction survived an appeal. Then uh, you know it's a, it's a felony charge. I don't. I, it's hard for me to imagine um, a situation where a former president ends up in in the federal, in the state penitentiary. I'll just tell you that. I, it's and, and mainly from almost from logistics uh, and things. But at the same time, it might also do things like a conviction would prevent him from running for office again. Things that I wish our politicians had the guts to do, uh, as opposed to having to rely on the, uh, the the criminal system. This would have been an easy case for impeachment. Should, there should be no question about the, the conduct that went on around January the 6th and uh, efforts around the country to overturn the election and to, to, to defy the will of the American people. But politicians didn't have the fortitude to do it. And so here, here we are. Well, let's go back to this before I let you go. Then the consequences maybe for Fonnie Willis and her office, if there are no charges filed, if nothing comes out of this and folks say, y'all spent all this time on this and then you don't do anything. Yeah, I think that's unlikely, uh, just candidly, because uh, of the amount of effort that's gone into it. She brought in some experts in the field of the RICO statute and things to work with. Uh, and, and she's a smart prosecutor and a, an experienced prosecutor. Um, I, I think that it's very likely that somebody will be charged. It may not be Trump. I mean, this is a he does a great job of keeping a buffer between himself and, and the jail. Mm-hmm. You know, if he puts somebody there like an aide or a lawyer or a group of people, underlings, that end up taking the hit. I mean, you saw it with the Michael Cohen. Mm-hmm. He took the fall for things Trump did. You see, you saw it with Weisselberg in the New York case, even though Trump wasn't a defendant, but still Weisselberg now is going to jail about how the Trump organization money was paid out. Mm-hmm. You know? So this, he does that. And he, and so that to me, they may get to a certain level. So if you think about working up the line, they may get to some captains and colonels. I don't know if they'll get to the general uh, in, in the case, but uh, it, it, they very well could. Uh, and at that point, depending on who she decides to charge, if she does, then I think you'll see some deal making going on because folks will be saying, look, I, I'm not throwing the rest of my life away mm-hmm. to protect somebody who, uh, it was, who who's not going to be president again. And, and Attorney Moore, when it comes to that intersection of elected officials, and particularly high-ranking elected officials, and 
alleged criminal misconduct or, or, or what have you. You know, I, I think for, for many people, for, for the little folks like me, you know, they'd say well, there seems to always be some loophole for them that they try to hide behind or shield behind. Hey, I'm an elected official and I'm immune to this or you can't do this and I'm not subject to this. It, it, you know, if you could, if they said, OK, Mr. Attorney Moore, we're going to let you take your wand and change some things. What would it be as it relates to that intersection? You know, I think it deals so much more than just political influence. I think you see that from uh, socioeconomic differences. I think you see it, uh, you know, there, I think there are racial differences and sometimes how cases are, are, are well, prosecuted. Look, I, mean, it, I think it goes across the spectrum. And I think if I could take my wand and wave it, you know, uh, it, I would probably do two things. Number one is I would get some pundits to slow down instead of, you know, uh, ramping up maybe expectations about one case or another on that. But at the same time, then I would try to have what, what I think would be a, a, a neutral, real sentencing. I, I, I appreciate and I have a lot of trust in our court system. Obviously, I do it every day. Um, and, and, but uh, at the same time, I think um, uh, we, we sometimes have these disparities that do affect either the, the caliber of the lawyers mm -hmm. that people can represent. You. And the, your former guest said that you had some folks waiting in jail in that case that didn't have a lawyer for six months. That's, that's inexcusable mm -hmm. and inexplicable to me. Yeah. No matter what the case is. Yet, yeah. There have been some cases where they've used, oh, my client is a victim of affluenza, which mm -hmm. means because they are wealthy, they know no better right. or why? Right? Just right. craziness. No, I, I, I'm telling you, I think that the, the, the social and economic disparities play in, uh, in, in such a great way. And, and, uh, it's, um, it's it's unfortunate in, in, in some respects. I, I do think you could. There's been a lot of talk in the Trump investigation about trying to treat him like anybody else, right? They want to treat him. They keep saying, "Well, he's like any other person." Look, I mean, let's let's we'll kind of put it down where the cows could get it. That's that's not necessarily true. I mean, how many special grand juries have you heard of in the state of Georgia? Mm -hmm. I mean, it just doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. I mean, how many special prosecutors are there working right now on cases in the United States Department of Justice? It just doesn't happen that often. I mean, and the reality is it is a different circumstance. It is a different, and it's a big step. It's, it is a big leap. I don't want to, I don't know that it's a good uh, precedent to set as a nation that mm -hmm. former presidents face prosecution by local prosecutors. In other words, I, I think that's a dangerous place unless we're very careful. Then how do you, but then what do you have in place then to curb that conduct or prevent it? Or there's got to be some accountability if it's clear. I, I, I agree. And I think that's to me where I think the Department of Justice uh, is, is more well, is, is well suited uh, to do these kinds of cases because it removes some of the local things. Now, I, I would not want Joe Biden to be charged by a local DA in Texas for some kind of immigration violation that they thought that they had because of something he said. I think that's a dangerous place to be. If the Department of Justice, who has maintained neutrality, I mean, they, the Department is- Well, that's what's on, key, if they can maintain right. that. And that's what I mean. That's yeah. they, 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 they can't be weaponized. And I think under the past administration, we saw efforts to weaponize the Department of Justice. Matter of fact, you had some justice officials who may find themselves charged now. Yeah. Right. I mean, former justice. So so you, you have to maintain a level of neutrality, a, a level of integrity so that when you shoot straight with people and say, this is what I found, this is what my investigation found, this is what I, how I'm going to move forward, they can have confidence in that. And that's not built off of one case. That's built off of years of candor and, and uh uh, being an open book to the American people. All right. Good conversation. Michael J. Moore, former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. We're going to invite you back. It's been a great pleasure, Rose. Thank you, and I look forward to it. Thank, Thank you. you. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Full disclosure, if you don't like daylight saving time and all that, and there are many who don't, blame New Zealand, not me. You can blame these new these dudes from back in the 1800s, George Vernon Hudson and some British dude named William Willett. Uh, they were scientists, but apparently it goes back then, so save your emails. Now, in just a few short months, it will be time to spring ahead and begin daylight saving time all over again. But for many, the twice-a-year time shift 
Springing ahead, falling back is a struggle, and the struggle is real. It can cause sleep problems and other potential health issues, according to the American Medical Association, because they're also calling for an end to daylight saving time and a permanent move to standard time. Now, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine says there are a number of health benefits that would come with an end to the annual switch. So we're going to talk about it as we welcome the president of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, Dr. Jennifer Martin. And you can send her your emails if you disagree. Doctor, welcome. <laughs> Thank you for having me. All right, here we go. Let's get to it. What's the problem with uh, daylight saving time? What, what What's your issue with it? You're on team. Go oh, away, right? Yeah, exactly. And and. You know, this has been an evolution for us mm-hmm. because um, I think a lot of us really hate changing our clocks. That that I think most people can agree on. Yeah, I see you raising your hand. <laughs> so, um, but the, the question was, so what do we do about it? Mm-hmm. And I think this is where the debate happens. Where, where should the time be? Should mm-hmm. we stick with daylight savings time? Should we stick with standard time or should we pick something entirely new? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what what's happened uh, over time is that the benefits of daylight savings time. So, uh, you know, shifting the daylight hours uh, later uh, relative to the clock have really been theoretical and they haven't really borne out. Mm-hmm. What we have seen, though, is that during the period of the year when the clock is shifted an hour, we see a lot more um, accidents. We see more fatigue. Um, so we see a lot of problems that are linked to having less daylight early in the day. Um, as organisms, we are really wired to line up with the sun. Uh, and so when the sun comes up very late in the morning, which I think folks in northern states really feel this, mm-hmm. although even in California, I feel it too. Um, you know, waking up when it's dark outside is not so pleasant. Yeah. And when we shift to daylight savings time, we have uh, much later sunrises. In some parts of the country, the sun doesn't even come up until you know nine o'clock in the morning. Um, the other thing is that I think people sometimes confuse short day length with daylight savings. So there are fewer hours of sun in the winter, mm-hmm. no matter what, unless you live right on the equator, I suppose it'd be hard to, te- to tell the difference, but um, that has nothing to do with what the clock on the wall says. Mm. Uh, so there is going to be fewer daylight hours in the winter. And what uh, circadian scientists, people who study kind of that daily rhythm of, of human health and, and uh, performance have found is that standard time lines up best with the hours of daylight. So mm-hmm. that means that we are most awake, alert, and doing the things that are important to us during daylight hours when we use standard time as opposed to daylight savings time. And so in other words, our body is our bodies are used to a certain time and, and it's it's hard to shift, to just make that shift. Some people say yep. that it doesn't affect them. Others say, look, it takes me months to get used to that. Then I get used to it and then we got to change the clock again. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I always say like um, we can tolerate an hour here and there, most of us. The, the folks who can't are babies, dogs and cats. Tell so, me about it on the I, cat situation. I the <laughs> yes, I hear all the time. And my, my own experience with my own pets is that they actually don't care what time the clock on the wall says. <laughs> I grew up on a farm and guess what? The animals on our farm didn't care either. So, um, you know, I think there's also this perception that that farmers like it. Well, I can tell you none of the farmers in my family liked it at all. And in fact, they found it really disruptive because what would happen is the truck that came to pick up the milk shifted time zones, but the cows didn't know that they were supposed to change mm-hmm. the time that they were actually uh, giving milk. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think that uh, that it's true. We can adjust to an hour here mm-hmm. and there, but um, but it is harder for some subsets of the population. And again, the daylight hours lining up with when people are out and about is what's really important. If the United States were to change, switch to permanent standard time, but uh, what's the effect that it has on the rest of the world? And particularly to our neighbors to the north and to the south, to Canada and, and, and Mexico, would they also have to switch? Is it going to take a coordinated global effort here? Or can one nation well, say... Guess what? What? Mexico already did it. They already got rid of daylight savings time. The exception that they have is in some of the border cities with the United States. So we are holding them back, actually. <laughs> um, Way to go, and, America. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that I think a lot of folks might not be aware of is that, you know, Arizona and Hawaii already have year round standard time. Mm -hmm. So um, and we do not see uh, some of the disadvantages that that, you know, people might have thought, you know, some people will say, oh, well, with more light in the evening, people are more physically active. Mm -hmm. We don't really see that, you know, that that people are less active if, if we don't have daylight savings time. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that actually the rest of the world might be a little bit ahead of us. I know the European Union is having conversations about this. Not sure what's going on in Canada, um, but uh, Mexico has already already made the switch. How optimistic are you that this will happen here? Um, <laughs> I, well, let me put it this way. I'm more optimistic than I was a year ago. Really? This is something been on our mind at the American Academy of Sleep Medicine for a long time. And like I said, I think everyone agrees that changing our clocks sucks. Nobody says, oh, I can't wait to change my clock. <laughs> um, but I think the challenge is that, um, that bringing people on board with the idea of permanent standard time. You know, I always think maybe we have bad marketing because daylight savings time sounds really good and Sanders time sounds really boring. <laughs> we need like a new name for it. Um, because really what standard time is, um, is the time that best aligns our internal clock with the sun clock. Um, so I, how hopeful am I that we might get there? Um, I would say I'm cautiously optimistic. I think this has also given organizations like ours an opportunity to encourage people to reflect on how they feel when their sleep is disrupted. Um, people are starting to pay a little more attention to it. One other thing I want to mention is related to actual um, school start time for teenagers. Mm -hmm. So I live in a state where we high schools, with a few exceptions, high schools have to start 830 or later. So if we switch to permanent daylight savings time, it would kind of undo that benefit. And in terms of a kid's internal biological clock, it would be like saying 730. Um, and uh, having a teenager myself mm -hmm. who, uh, you know, I, I can definitely tell you that it's uh, it's much easier for him to get up and start his day when the sun is out. Well, and also uh, and get to school and be alert and learn. And keep in mind, too, for students who are catching the bus, you know, and when it's dark. I yeah, mean, that you know, that can be problematic as well. Um, well, you know, Rosa, the U.S. did try switching to permanent um, daylight savings time in the past. And one of the reasons that it was very quickly abandoned was because of um, children waiting for buses and walking to school, getting injured in accidents. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely something at the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, you know, safety of kids and, and how the, that, that their sleep health plays into their health and safety is, uh, is really important to us. And definitely one of the reasons why we do not support permanent daylight time. And if folks are wondering what's the holdup, well, listen, it takes an act of Congress exactly that's a whole nother yeah. show <laughs> but that's uh, right because they can't seem to agree on a whole lot these days so it would and i know i think the u.s senate had actually passed something um but you know yeah with, so so there was a bill proposed by a senator from florida where you know i would argue they're less affected by the time change than some <laughs> of the northern states um uh that was passed with unanimous consent which is not quite the same as floor vote it just means nobody said it was a bad idea. Um, and, you know, I think when the House started looking at it, they sort of put the brakes on and said, well, hold on a minute. It's not quite that simple. Um, and again, I think especially uh, uh, representatives from states that already have permanent standard time, they have no appetite for actually changing. Really? They are perfectly happy where they are. Yeah. Oh, of course they are. <laughs> Listen, well, it's. I mean, we think it's better. <laughs> I have a I have a listener who writes, I've heard that it's golfers who are pushing making daylight saving time permanent. Ask your guests, please. Golfers. Golfers got something to say about this, too, huh? <laughs> and I play golf. Um, I'm not a golfer. Yeah. I play. There's a big difference. Yeah, I, I hear you. Um, so that is in part true, although I think it's more golf courses and resorts than actual golfers. <laughs> Um, because the truth is that, you know, it, in the winter, it gets dark earlier and you can't get a full round of golf in after work anyway. True. This hour doesn't make a huge difference. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that that's the other issue is it's again, it's a theoretical benefit that people are outside and more active 
um, during uh, daylight savings time doesn't seem to really work out that way. So let's, in about a minute that we have, let's go ahead and get, and rehearse this. You're called up to Congress to testify. What are you going to say, Dr. Martin? I would summarize the difference between daylight savings time and permanent standard time as the benefits of daylight savings time are theoretical, the health risks are real, and the benefits of permanent standard time are, are real uh, in terms of uh, human health and safety. That's it. Do you need to do you need to give any other data to support it? Because you know, you know, Congress sure. they have lots of questions. They do, and I and I think that um, that we tried this before is another bit of evidence, and we quickly abandoned it because of harms. Um, mm -hmm. So let's not get it wrong again. Um, and uh, and again, I think all this science uh, points to permanent standard time as the best way to align our internal clocks as humans with the rising and setting of the sun. All right. President of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, Dr. Jennifer Martin, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. We shall see what happens. Yes. Thank you for the time. I appreciate it. Meanwhile, spring ahead and fall back. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Rezell, and Pat St. Clair. Tiffany Griffith is our supervising producer. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And to the emailer who is saying that he has no problem, I haven't set a clock in years because all of mine do it automatically. This has to be for people of a new generation. <laughs> What's that mean? Come on. <laughs> if you miss any of today's show, it's online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Meanwhile, while you have time and it's light, stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. From Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.